Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, business executives, and entrepreneurs about some of the most interesting ideas and frontier issues in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today joining me is Austin Allred. He is the co-founder and CEO of Lambda School. It is an online platform that trains you remotely to be a web developer or data scientist. Uh, the user pays no tuition until it is he or she is hired. Uh, Austin is a native of, of Springville, Utah. His startup journey began in 2017 with him living in his two-door Civic uh, while participating in Y Combinator. As some of you may know, YC is the San Francisco-based seed accelerator for startups. And this experience became the foundation of Lambda School's rapid growth. Uh, before founding Lambda School, Austin was the co-founder of media platform Grasswire. And he co-authored the growth hacking textbook, Secret Sauce, which became a bestseller and provided him the personal seed money to build Lambda School. Uh, Austin, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, and co-hosting the show with me is my friend Arsh Dobagi. He is a senior in the financial engineering department here at Princeton. Arsh, thanks for coming back on the show with me. Thanks for having me again, Tiger. Uh, Austin, maybe we can just dive right in. Uh, Lambda School, some of my friends, um, multiple of my friends told me about it and, and uh, forward me uh, your writings over the past few months and years. And I'm really fascinated by the idea. And so it's really great that we finally got to talk about this. Uh, to start us off, could you just give our listeners some context on Lambda School? What do you teach? What is your mission? What is Lambda School? Yeah, <clears throat> so at a high level, uh, you can think of Lambda School as kind of a trade school. Um, so we train people for high paying careers. Our main focuses right now are software engineering and data science. Um, and we do that at, for no upfront cost um, in exchange for two years of a student's income um, in the US. Um, so uh, for 17% of their income. So basically um, it's a way for students to de-risk uh, what they're paying to land the school. Um, and they, you know, they don't, basically don't pay any tuition until they're hired. Um, so that's the, the high level way to think about it is a school with kind of a risk guarantee built in. And everything is online. Everything is entirely online. online. I see. Yeah, that's correct. I read on your website that your full-time classes are 40 hours a week for six months and the part-time classes are 15 hours a week for 12 months. So you'll receive over 900 hours of guided instruction. So basically the student would uh, apply and, and register and then they'll take 900 hours of classes with you remotely. And then hopefully they'll graduate and uh, find a job in computer science and so on. That, that's yep, the that's logic. pretty much correct. I, I, I see. Would, would you mind telling us a bit about the admission and selection process as well for how you choose uh, some of your students? Yeah, so we have a, a somewhat non-traditional admissions process. We don't really care <clears throat> what your background is, what school you went to, or what your GPA was. Um, so we, we have a few little tests. Um, so we try to test uh, how quickly you can pick up on some analytical things. Um, and in some instances, we have pre-course work. Um, so we kind of say, all right, do this work. And then based on how well you're able to do that work, we will uh, make our acceptance or denial decision. Um, but it, yeah, so it's pretty, you know, I don't even have to know what your name is or where you live or what your background is to, to make the full admissions decision. Would you mind telling us a bit more about the demographics of your students? Are they mostly sort of college graduates who hope to take their career to the next level? Or um, I, I suppose maybe nobody treat this as a replacement to college education? Yeah, so about half of our students have graduated from college. 
when one way or another, whether that's a four-year degree or um, post-bac, uh, <clears throat> you know, more than undergrad, um, about half have not. So that's usually, you know, a few college credits. Um, some people come straight out of high school, um, either when they're younger or just never went to college. Um, that, that's a smaller subset, but it's about 50-50 in having gone to college versus didn't. The average age is about 31 um, with kind of a bell curve around that. So we have a, a little curve around, you know, 18 for um, students who are coming straight out of high school and then a bigger curve. So generally speaking, it's mid-career, career switching, um, kind of gone to college, but don't need to have gone to college. Um, and demo, you know, demographically or ethnically um, skew minority in pretty much every way versus the general population. Um, and I think that's just, you know, what happens when you make something free up front, you're exposing opportunity to folks who didn't have opportunities before. Um, yeah, that's pretty much the demographics of Latin school. Awesome. Uh, I have a question. So is, is there a lower limit on the age group that you allow? What if you find a 16 year old that can answer your aptitude test fairly well? Do they qualify? Yeah, it's a really good question. I am trying to figure out how to extend it to, to younger people. Right now, the limit is 18 just because you need to sign some legal uh, documents. Um, I'm having our team look into what it would take for someone who's younger. Um, I don't know the answer to that right now. I'd imagine in the future, it's totally possible. And I know there are plenty of 16 year olds who are intellectually capable and, and whatever else. It's just a matter of legal and regulatory limitations. That makes sense. And in kind of an extension on the point that you mentioned that half of the students that you get have already gone through college. What's the main driver for them to come to Lambda school? Have they studied similar things in college and, and are they finding it difficult to get a job? So they come to Lambda school or do they feel like there's an educational component that they missed on and they come to Lambda school? Yeah, generally speaking, if it's someone who's graduated from college, they, they studied something else and they're looking to switch careers. Um, so there are a lot of people who, you know, there are a ton of careers that if you study the wrong thing in college, you end up underemployed or having a really hard time getting a job. Um, and I'm, I don't want to call out any major specifically, but we all, we all probably know what those are. Um, and so there are people who are really smart and just kind of pick the wrong thing and are trying to figure out how to um, make the next step. How about the, I guess, graduation rate slash successful employment rate. I mean, I, we often hear stories like, uh, say I'm a bartender, I make 60K a year right now, but suddenly I really hope to take my career to the next step. And I realize I could be making 150K a year if I'm like a software en engineer in Silicon Valley. So do they come to Lambda School? Like how, how successful it usually is this kind of career switch? Yeah, the short answer is um, it's broadly successful. Um, in some instances, it's not going to work out, and we can discover that very quickly um, and make sure that those people don't have to pay anything. Um, but we actually produce a full outcomes report on our website. I don't want to uh, misquote because whenever I get a number wrong off the top of my head, some regulator uh, gives me a call. Um, but yeah, you can, you can download the full uh, outcomes report. I think it's lambdaschool.com slash outcomes, um, and all the numbers are there. But you know, generally speaking, you know, graduation rates and hiring rates are in the kind of 70% uh, ish ranges. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty happy with where that's at. Obviously, we'd always like to see better and, you know, trying as hard as we can to, to make everything as perfect as we can. 
um, even when serving an underserved population, which is a little more challenging. Um, but yeah, it, broadly speaking, it works. Um, and if I could you know, wave a magic wand and have someone who meets our bar show up every day and work really hard and do what we would like them to do, um, generally speaking, it works. Perhaps it would be nice to take a step back and talk a little bit more about your personal journey because, uh, I mean, I, I listened to a lot of the podcasts, previous interviews you, you, you've done, you talked about the case of downside risk, how important it is to sometimes take the downside risk away from people because you personally came uh, from, from an uneasy background when it comes to entrepreneurship and founding multiple companies. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about what inspired you to start Lambda School? Yeah, so um, you know, before I started Lambda School, um, as you kind of alluded to in the introduction, um, I wanted to work in Silicon Valley. I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have any education. I actually dropped out of college. Um, I thought it was too expensive and a waste of time. <laughs> um, so I just, I bought a two-door Honda Civic and I drove out to Silicon Valley and I lived in my car for four months while I taught myself enough to kind of become dangerous and get my first job. Um, so I taught myself to code. I taught myself a little bit of marketing and I'd always been kind of working in um, you know, or studying various marketing things online. Um, so yeah, eventually, you know, I found a job. And one of the interesting things about that is um, having, so I, you know, the, the company that I worked for was a high growth startup in San Francisco. Um, and before I moved to San Francisco, I was living in a small town with my, uh, well, she started my, as my fiance and then became my wife. Um, and in that town of about 4,000 people, like the notion of somebody just going to Silicon Valley and becoming a software engineer was pretty unheard of. Um, so people would come to me all the time and kind of say, you know, what did you do? How can I do what you do? That seems really interesting. And like, there wasn't a good path I could recommend to anybody. Right. Like you can't you can't in good conscience tell somebody, yeah, you should just go uh, buy a car, live in your car for a few months, teach yourself how to code, you know, network as well as you can start meeting people. Um, and, you know, there are code schools, um, but those were usually really expensive and usually really far away. And so I wanted to start something that I would have used, you know, a few years earlier where I was trying to break into tech. I was trying to gain the skills that I needed to get hired. Um, I didn't have very much money. I didn't, you know, it's really difficult for me to move somewhere. Um, and so that's, you know, we wanted to create something that was both free up front and entirely online. And that's what became Lambda School. Since, since we're on the topic of uh, free online and, and uh, no cost up front, the really interesting thing about this business model is this, this component called the income sharing agreement and ISA, this business model has sort of been this, the, the source of your success. And because you simply say you can come and, and learn, but then later we'll take, you know, 30K up to $30,000 of your future income. Would, would you mind telling a little bit, us a little bit more about this business model? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so when we started out, um, you know, I, we were totally bootstrapped and it was just me and my co-founder. Um, and we said, Hey, you need to pay us, you know, $10,000 a month and then we'll, we'll train you how to code. Um, and that was working, right? We had, a, we had a bunch of students in our first cohort. Um, we had thousands of students. We would teach free classes on the side. Um, so we had thousands of students enrolled in those free classes. And we basically go to those students and say, hey, 
uh, you know, why don't you pay us $10,000? Why don't you join the full school? And they would all say, well, because I don't have $10,000, you idiot. That's why I'm trying to, you know, change my career is because I don't make enough money as it is. That's half of the point. Um, so one day we kind of tried an experiment where I emailed our list and, you know, um, there are a bunch of people on it. And I basically said, all right, if you, we're going to try an experiment. Um, if you pay us $1,000 up front, then you can join Lambda School if you qualify and you won't have to pay us anything else until after you're hired. And at that point, you'll have to pay us another $10,000, right? So it's going to be a little bit more expensive, um, but you won't have as much risk up front. Um, and that time, you know, normally when we'd send an email like that, we'd get one or two applicants. That time we got something like 200 new applicants. It was crazy. Um, so it was clear that there was just way more demand for that. And like that, that changed the equation for people, right? Um, now I can try, try out the school and see if it works with only a thousand dollars up front. That's a totally different equation. Um, and so when that started working, we said, you know, there are really two things we want to fix here. The first is that, you know, the three month code school that most people rely on just isn't long enough. Um, and employers know that and employers are sick of trying to people trying to be hired after three months. It's just fundamentally not, not enough hours, not enough time. Um, and then we were really curious to see what would happen if we made it completely free up front. Um, so we basically said, okay, we're going to make the school six months long. We're going to train you in computer science in addition to kind of the, you know, learn to code curriculum that a lot of schools have. We're going to go a lot deeper. We're going to go a lot more fundamental. Um, and if you, um, you know, you don't have to pay us anything until you get a job. And basically the model we have today, where if you do get a job that pays more than $50,000 a year, you have to pay us a percentage of your income for two years, capped at 30K, um, or you can pay us 20K upfront. So it's going to be a little bit more expensive. Um, so we had a couple people who applied and paid upfront. Um, and then we had, I think it was something like two or 3,000 who said, okay, I'm in for the, for the free upfront um, pay after you get hired version. So, you know, orders of magnitude, more people were able to participate in, in the new model than in the old model. And that's when we realized we'd really stumbled upon something. And, you know, as we talked to people, realized that um, eliminating that risk from them financially just was, it was everything. It totally changed the equation for them and for their families and changed what they could do, um, changed how long they could study. It cha changes everything. That's, that's incredible and kudos to you guys for figuring that out. And I think the, the extension of that question that I have in mind, and as you mentioned this in the beginning of our conversation that half the students you get are not in college or they've taken some sort of degree and then they have a life outside school at that point in time. So I think it's safe for me to say that they probably have some sort of a base living cost. They're, they're out of that student phase. And given that we've also talked about it takes about 900 hours for them to graduate through the program. Have there been any conversations around for people where it becomes difficult to kind of put a stop on their life, go back to school and spend this much time in an educational program, wherein they still have to worry about that fixed cost and, and the risk of kind of paying for their day-to-day -day living? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's something that's ever present at Lambda School. Um, it's, always, it's always a battle against the clock, right? Whether it's your savings or you have a spouse or family member that's supporting you or uh, you you know, a lot of our students in part-time have full-time jobs and are doing this on the side. Um, and it's 
it's possible, but that's a lot of hours outside of work, right? It's, you know, 15, uh, 20 plus hours a week. Um, and that's hard to find. And you have to do that for a year or in some instances longer. Um, so that's, it's a constant battle of, it's a constant race of us against the clock. Um, we've tried a few things. Um, we, we try to uh, experiment with living stipends where we'll pay you X dollars an hour while you study and you have to pay us back more on the other side. Um, but that hasn't quite worked. There, there, there are too many people who frankly took the money and ran um, and never tried to get a job. Um, so, you know, we can, we can support a level of risk um, and that was just too much for us at the, the existing time. Um, you know, the, the honest reality is I have never talked to a school who has made a, an income share agreement profitable. Like I haven't seen anybody yet who is making money from income share agreements. Everybody's still in the uh, try to make it work phase. Um, but I'm confident that we will be able to make it work and we'll be able to make it profitable. And then when that is true, um, you know, all of your problems go away. You don't, you don't, most schools are fighting to get students enrolled and they're spending all of their money on advertising. Uh, we don't have that problem. Um, we, you know, we obviously can advertise from time to time, but it's not the main driver of who enrolls in Lambda School. What's the main driver of who enrolls in Lambda School is the offer, right? It's the, it's the education, it's the incentive alignment and the elimination of risk and upfront tuition. Um, and so the interesting thing about that is we kind of forced that on the entire industry to where everybody to some degree or another has to have a similar offer just to be able to compete for students. Um, and then the company that is able to make that work sustainably in the long run um, you know, they'll not only get the students, but they'll be able to sustain themselves and, and be profitable. So in a funny way, we shifted the entire industry from a focus on user acquisition and marketing to a focus on outcomes, um, where, you know, the school that can produce the best outcomes per student wins. And, you know, that's a pretty fundamental shift. Um, and it forces you to spend differently. It forces you to think differently. And, you know, I think there's kind of no going back. It's much more difficult to make work. Um, but I think, you know, we've just entered a world where if you're not willing to share risk with students, you're not going to get students. Um, and so net net, I think that's an enormous positive for, you know, for the consumer, for the student. I, I think I totally agree. It's, it's, it's a great benefit for people and like it makes education accessible for everyone as well. And I think that leads me to a two-parter question, right? Fundamentally, compared to any kind of payout model and profit model, the income for, for us educational institution comes from the students in some form or the other. And uh, schools like Princeton have amazing endowments and like charge a huge amount of fee to kind of tuition fee and whatnot. So what is, because you still have to make money back from the students somehow. So the two-parter question is, if you're not investing into acquiring students upfront, what does that funnel look like? How do people hear about Lambda School, come to you, apply, and then get into Lambda School? And what does the roadmap to profitability looks like? Like what's the biggest speed bump in the process to get there? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, both are really good questions actually. <clears throat> um, so that's the unique thing about, you know, um, often, 
venture capital backed startups will be accused for selling a dollar for 97 cents. And of course, in that instance, it's not hard to acquire users. Um, that's how it feels for a lot of our students, right? It's a fundamentally better offer than, um, you know, taking out loans or paying upfront tuition. It's just a fundamentally better way to do things. Um, so, we, you know, we have the, we're lucky in that most students hear about us the same way you guys heard about us, which is somebody said, oh my gosh, there's this school that's trying this crazy new thing. And isn't that so different and so unique? Um, and isn't that, you know, just, just better. Um, so word of mouth drives almost everything for us um, from right, at least right now from a user, from a student acquisition standpoint. Um, and even when we do need to advertise for some reason, it's just such a compelling offer. Um, now, again, the trick is making that offer work and be sustainable and not give away a dollar for 97 cents or 50 cents or whatever else. Um, and the way you do that is by having better outcomes. Um, so right now our, you know, our big push has really always been outcomes since day one and making sure that all of our students get hired and do really well in their careers. Um, and I think that's unique for, for most schools. You know, we go out of business if our students don't do really well. And that's not true at most educational institutions. So what does the roadmap to profitability look like for us? Well, you know, we're, we're a few percentage points away from uh, su supporting the costs that we have in the school of being able to say, look, when I put a dollar into training a student, the student gets hired and we get a dollar 20 out or whatever. Um, so, it, you know, it seems a little, you know, it, it seems silly from the surface, just make students more successful. Uh, then you have more revenue and you make more money. Um, but it is a pretty dramatic shift from the way educa education is used to working. Um, you know, we, when a student enrolls in Lambda School, their success is what, their success or lack thereof is what pays my salary or doesn't. Um, and that incentive alignment is just really, really cool. No, I think I totally agree. And that, that's such an amazing insight. And I think an extension of that is for you guys, it must make a huge difference as to how much does it cost to land a school to educate someone. The lower that cost, the better your model becomes, the more you can do this at scale. And I think mm -hmm. the biggest component of that is it's from the day one been remote education. So that definitely costs less than kind of setting up an entire institution in person. Mm -hmm. So what, what does the process for you guys look like of getting an instructor involved? Like how, how does the payout for the instructor work? How do you get those instructors? that's kind of part one of the question. The part two of this question is, since it is remote, did you believe that after a certain volume of instructor, most of this can be like recorded education or parts of it can be recorded education that help you optimize the entire kind of 900 hour pipeline? Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, so the short answer is, you know, theoretically we would love to automate as much of it as we can and we would love to pay as little as we can. Um, to have the same outcomes. The trick there is the having the same outcomes piece um, where, you know, it's really easy to, so we do record basically everything that we do and you could in theory, um, you know, access all of Lambda School asynchronously and, and never talk to a human. Um, so why do we not just do that, right? That would be infinite margin, basically. Um, the reason is because it doesn't work <laughs> because students that, um, you know, if, 
if every student were successful in that environment, that would be awesome. It's just not what happens. Um, so, you know, for us, it's it's always a battle of, you know, what, what can we do to produce the right outcomes? Um, and if, you know, if we find a way to produce the same outcomes for 50 cents of, you know, for spending half, that would be awesome. Um, but so far as I have ever seen, no one's been able to do that. Um, I hope that over time, you know, we can use more software, more automation, um, do more cool stuff in that regard. But if it comes at the cost of outcomes, there's just no, no scenario in which it's worth it. Austin, all this discussion on business is fascinating. And I, and I think we should probably talk a little bit about the education side of things, especially your uh, comparison with universities, traditional kind of liberal arts education as well. Uh, it, it was really uh, heartwarming to, to hear you um, on a different podcast. You were saying how in, as in the years, in the coming years, uh, when you talk about the program number, sort of number of participants in your program, you will no longer be talking about in just absolute terms, but rather in relative terms, in terms of percentage of all new students learning to code in this year in the United States, what percentage of that will be coming to Lambda School? And that's like a fascinating kind of new model of just education at large. And, and uh, I think especially as we move into this online paradigm and, and uh, we democratize education more and more. So would you mind telling us a bit how you see your relationship with liberal arts college experiences versus a pre-professional kind of college education, you know, like someone going to the state school and getting an accounting degree uh, versus a traditional trade school. I I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you position yourself. Yeah, so of those three things, we're definitely closest to, to probably a trade school. Um, so, you know, if you go to a traditional university or you look at a traditional university curriculum, it's designed to, you know, create a well-rounded person who thinks deeply it's a whole experience where, you know, I'm sure at, um, you know, Princeton, I don't know what percentage of the value of your Princeton education comes in, you know, the material or the books that you read, but I'd guess it's, you know, not a hundred percent. Right. Um, whereas, you know, Lambda school where we are very, very specifically driven to do one thing and that is increase your income. So everything that we do is for helping you get a better job, for helping you get the skills you need to get a better job, for helping you succeed in your career. And that means there are a lot of things that we don't do that other schools do. Um, I mean, obviously we don't have sporting events. Um, we don't have very much in terms of liberal arts. Um, there are, you know, we don't teach fundamental sciences. We just train people for job skills and help them increase their income. Um, you know, my, I think the way that a lot of European schools do it is fundamentally better where, you know, you, you do more of the career training when you're younger. And then after you have a high paying career and you spend more time in liberal arts, I think that makes a lot of sense instead of going into debt for the liberal arts and trying to pay it back later. Um, that's just tricky and, and can go really wrong. So, you know, I, I love the liberal arts. I love, you know, I play a bunch of musical instruments. I read all the time. Um, I, you know, study politics a lot. Um, I, you know, love the classics, um, but I never, I don't have a college degree. Um, and I never really studied much of that in college. And I think, you know, in the United States, we can tend to lump those things together really strongly as, you know, as if the only place you could read Shakespeare is within the walls of a university classroom. Um, so 
you know, we're not prescriptive in, you know, all that other stuff. We are just laser focused on career advancement and on increasing income. Do you see this as somewhat of a uh, more limited to the field of computer science or data science in the sense that it would be very hard to have this kind of program designed to for, I don't know, mechanical engineers, aerospace engineers or so on? Or do you kind of see your model of Lambda School, online education, um, upfront payment, uh, teaching them in a more trade school model, spilling over to more disciplines? Uh, it, it will definitely spill over to more disciplines. Um, I mean, in some instances, there are a variety of other challenges, whether it's you know regulatory saying you need to have a four-year degree in order to, or you know you need you need X to be a lawyer or you need Y to be a doctor. So those are more difficult, um, just because of the way laws are written. But yeah, I mean, there's no reason you couldn't have a nurse that uses this model. There's no reason you couldn't have. Um, uh, a, a plumber. Uh, there's no reason you yeah. couldn't have an aerospace engineer. You can have um, all sorts of things that you can train for um, using this model. It's not it's not unique to computer science or or limited really in any way. I think a follow up question I have along those lines is, and I think correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is one of the things that you guys have done best and you guys have optimized for is making sure that after you get the education, it can be very clearly applied and you can get a job with that education that pays well. And if, if that's the model, and if we look at kind of the hours that go into the, the program to graduate, it's, it's six months, two semesters of full-time classwork, essentially. Do you see Lambda School as a module that fits into other schools that don't want to invest in the infrastructure of training their students for computer engineering because you guys are doing it really well? over time or even today? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, so the short answer is the vast majority of, we'll say software engineers end up learning most of what they learn on the job. Um, so our, our goal is to get you into a high paying career and then you can continue learning on the job. Now, that's not to say that there's no, you know, we've looked at and had offers for partnerships with, you know, various universities where, you know, could Lambda School cover the um, computer science portion of a computer science degree? It hasn't made sense to do that for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was um, they wanted all of the revenue and wanted to, us to take a tiny sliver of the revenue, but do all the work. Um, but but yeah, I think you know if you if you unbundle you know the university education experience, which isn't you know the ultimate education experience necessarily, but there are all sorts of different things and all sorts of different uh, benefits that you gain. There's, you know, camaraderie and a network. There is, you know, the liberal arts education piece. There's networking with brilliant professors and there is doing research. Um, I think over time, a lot of those will become kind of pulled apart um, to where you can pick which ones you want. Um, from my vantage, you know, if you ask the average um, American who's enrolling in a university what, you know, to stack rank the things that they're looking for, number one or number two is always or almost always, you know, a job or career advancement or something, you know, a network that leads to a job. Um, so that's that's what our focus is on. It's not a slam on the other things that a university education provides, like, you know, 
college football can still be totally fine. It's just not what we do. It's, it seems that Austin, your grand vision isn't to get rid of Princeton, which I think the Princeton administrators would be would be happy to hear. But uh, <laughs> I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on liberal arts education, where, where I guess what people would call the tyranny of credentialism in general these days. Meaning if you go to Ivy League school, you seem to have gotten a rubber stamp to go to finance or tech or some kind of the exclusive industry. Whereas if you go to a state school or if you don't have a college degree, you don't have access to those jobs. And I think one trend we're seeing is the rise of Lambda School. We're also seeing companies like Google who are kind of right now giving um, certifications for people who take their software engineering and computer science courses. So I, I, I see all these programs as putting high value on particular skills and not having this kind of wishy-washy credentialism certification. So do, do you see that as a future trend as, as getting grow and bigger and bigger? Or, uh, so I guess the, the question would be, where do you see is more likely? It, would it be more likely that we move to a future where skills are valued to become more important and whether you go to Princeton does not matter as much? Or will we go to an even more unequal future where because it's so, it's, it will become much harder to get into an Ivy League school uh, and getting a computer science skill through Lambda School is much more democratized, it becomes actually more exclusive and more appealing to get an Ivy League uh, liberal arts degree. So where do you see th things headed? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I, I think there's kind of a, a short-term answer and a long-term answer. Um, and, you know, I think honestly, in both of those, I don't see Princeton going away, right? Princeton <laughs> um, is unique. Um, and, you know, I'll lump all of the Ivy League together as, you know, one class of, of goods or opportunities or whatever you want to call it. Um, that said, the average American does not attend Princeton, right? Like very, very few um, are able to attend Princeton. And it's, it's a zero sum game to some extent. Only, I don't know what the numbers are. You guys probably actually 14, do know what the number is. a year, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's smaller than my high school, right? It's <laughs> um, so what I do think is happening is, you know, if you look at who is hiring Lambda School grads today, um, you know, they're, they're companies that you've never heard of. They're, you know, big and small all over the map, but the number two company is, you know, often in tech will refer to the FANG companies, um, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. Um, one of those, and I don't want to say which one for a variety of reasons is the number two hirer of Lambda School grads. Um, they, so they've, you know, hired dozens of Lambda School grads and they don't care at all if you have a college education or not. So what I think will happen in the long run is not necessarily that Harvard or Princeton go away. I would imagine that they will be just fine and the purpose that they serve is unique. What I would imagine will happen is the bottom thousand colleges in the, in the United States really start to struggle. Um, they're, they're already providing dubious value and the outcomes are not great. And, they're basically propped up by government lending at this point. Um, and the other thing that I think will happen is we will enter, enter a world where you don't have to go to Princeton in order to, you know, or you don't have to go to any university at all in order to work at, you know, the top finance firms or the top tech firms or the top whatever firms and where that's more available to more types of folks. Um, now that's not to say 
Princeton will no longer have an audience. I think it still will. Um, but the important thing for me is that you don't have to go to Princeton or you don't have to get a four-year degree if that's not you know, what suits your lifestyle and what suits your, your wants and needs. And you know, I don't like, it's a little bit crazy right now how every legislator I talk to just thinks that if you don't get a college degree, you're not going to be a successful person. Um, and there are people who look and act and think that way. And I just don't think that's true. And if you want to do that, that's fine. And that's you know, a great thing and it's you know, not a problem. But where we run into trouble is where we say, if you want to be successful, that's what you have to do. And by the way, you know, tuition is going up at an incredibly rapid pace. And you know, I just hope that you'll, you'll be able to pay for it on the other side. That's pretty unhealthy. Um, so feeling like you need to do that in order to be successful is, is super unhealthy. I guess just to clarify things a little bit, Austin, I guess from your vantage point, based on your conversations with those people who hire from Lambda School, it, it sounds like those big companies or their HRs don't see this liberal arts degree slash Ivy League credential as something as necessary as what it used to perceive to be. I mean, they, they probably care more about skills, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, there are different levels of how true that is for people. Um, a lot of our employers don't even ask for a resume anymore. They just don't care. Um, and yeah. it's just, you show up and you show what you can do with your skills and, and that's what matters. Um, I think that's pretty healthy in the long run. It's, it's more expensive to do from a hiring front. You can't just sift through people as easily as you can sift through paper. Um, but if that's an option, I think it's a much more egalitarian, fair, and frankly, you know, I think you find better talent that way than if you just look for, did this person go to the top end schools? No offense to the top end schools, of course. No, no, no. We, 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 we absolutely suck. So uh, based on this interview, <laughs> you, you, you'll no, walk no, away no. thinking Princeton kids don't know what they're talking about. But uh, <laughs> I, guess, I guess a quick follow up to that. How do you think liberal arts institutions or these quote unquote elite institutions could do better or reform themselves? Because uh, maybe this is naive on my end, but I was even thinking that day, maybe universities should be more egalitarian in the sense of doing something like an income sharing agreement <laughs> or something with their students to expand financial aid in, in some sense, or uh, focus a little bit more on skill building rather than this wishy-washy well-roundedness. So I, I don't know, which direction would you like to see traditional education institutions headed? Yeah, what I would like to see um, is again, you know, if, if what you want to do is go to Princeton and get a very well-rounded education or go to like, I would just like to see universities better define and more clearly define what their purpose is um, and say, this is the purpose that we serve. And if this is what you want, you should come here. If not, you should not. Um, and whatever that purpose may be is, is great, right? But the problem where I see the pain um, inflicted is where a student may enroll in a school and the one thing that they want out of it is a high paying career and they couldn't care less about the other stuff. Um, and at the same time, the school may not care about that. And they say, no, you know, our purpose here is not to help you get a job, not to help you network, not to help you get a career. Um, and that mismatch, you know, if, 
if school is basically free and doesn't take very long, it doesn't really matter. But the reality is right now it's really expensive and it takes a really long time. Um, so being, you know, 10% misaligned with the university with regard to what you would like out of it can be, you know, pretty destructive. And the other thing that I would like to see is I would like to see, um, you know, people feel like there are more paths to being a successful person than just going to a university. And, you know, that needs to flow through high school guidance counselors and politicians and everybody else, um, where the default right now is either, you know, you get a, you get an undergrad degree or you're unsuccessful. And frankly, I spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill and that's the way the majority of politicians view the world right now. And I think that forces us to put a lot of people on the track of a four-year degree where it doesn't make sense. And that, you know, that reflects itself in the student debt numbers. Um, and there are a lot of people who are paying the price for that. That's, that's such a great point. And I think just, just kind of doing a thought experiment, if, the, if these schools kind of go and do that and everyone's doing this model and then, then that presents some risk to Lambda school itself and like the entire program. And in the kind of chain of thought of when we talked about profitability, what other things are on your mind as an institution that you're trying to de-risk kind of over the next couple of years or half a decade or a decade that are really important for this to become viable for everyone? Yeah, I mean, so the, the things that are on my mind, you know, outside of outcomes, which we've already talked about quite a bit, um, are bigger and deeper relationships with employers. Like in, in my perfect world, um, no Lambda School grad would ever have to go out and you know, submit resumes to get a job again, they would just, you know, the employer would be plugged in from the beginning and be able to line everything up. Um, and then we'd be able to expand to, to expand basically to more people, more fields, more countries. Um, I think that those, those couple of things alone, you know, that's decades of work ahead of us. So it's hard to, hard for me to think too far beyond that. You know, I think the, in, the, in a perfect world, the average person would be able to come to Lambda School, raise their hand, say, I want a better job, and then we take care of the rest. Um, we match you with the perfect job for your interest and uh, your abilities. We cover all of the costs of getting there. We have the employer relationships on the other side to where you don't have to, you know, do, you don't have to work as hard to get your foot in the door. Um, and then, you know, perhaps in the future, even once you are in that career and, you know, you're successful and you want to level up, we have something available for you kind of part-time that, um, so that's the holistic long-term goal of Lambda School is make it so that anybody can show up, raise their hand and, and have a better career. Uh, Austin, I'm going to jump in with a very provocative a follow-up question because uh, uh, I, I told many of my friends that I'm interviewing and they're super excited and one of them raised this question. Uh, if, if Lambda School fails in five years, how would it fail? Uh, and, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. No, it's pretty straightforward. Um, our students would not be successful enough to offset our costs and we would go bankrupt. <laughs> and like, like I said, you know, no one's ever made that work yet. So um, in some ways, the default is that it doesn't work. So we're trying to create a new world in which it does work. And that's a world that nobody's ever lived in before. 
Um, but I think it's possible. Uh, how, how risky have you felt this whole journey been? I mean, uh, you've obviously been backed by some very famous venture funds. And maybe this is probably a good time to transition into your journey at Y Combinator and also your, your entrepreneurship experience more specifically with uh, Lambda School. But it, it seems like you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So uh, shouldn't that have, must have helped de-risk a little bit from a lot of people's vantage point? Yeah, no, it, like, I think if we hadn't raised, so we've raised right now 120 million. Um, and a lot of that is still in the bank. So it's not spent yet. Um, but without that, it would have been difficult and maybe impossible. <laughs> so, um, you know, we wouldn't have raised money if we didn't need to raise money or if it didn't make sense, at, you know, strategically to, to raise that money. Um, and I think it's what we talked about before where, you know, we're close to making it work. We're not there yet, but once you make it work, it changes everything for everybody. Um, so, you know, I think the people who've invested in Lambda School, um, you could ask them what percentage likelihood Lambda School is of being successful. And, you know, they will have different answers of what that percentage likelihood is. Um, but all of them, if you said, okay, if Lambda School is successful, you know, how big a deal does it become? All of their answers will be very big, uh, a very big deal. Um, so some of them even have transparently said, look, I think this is, you know, there's a 50% chance of this working. And if it works, then it changes everything forever. And, you know, it's a monumental shift. And as a, as a VC, that's, you know, those are the risks that you're paid to take. Um, and 50% isn't scary. Uh, now for me, you know, I would, I'm trying really hard to make it higher than a 50% likelihood of working out. Um, but we all recognize that there is definitely some level of risk in this. Um, and we all hope that the, the upside, if it works is more than enough to offset the risk of getting there. Um, and that's, you know, kind of just the way the world works. Nothing is, nothing is certain until it's happened. That's, that's the last statement that you just made was just like, I think people don't understand how much weight it holds, especially in, in the world of startups and in kind of what happens around them. An extension of that question that's in my mind is you did YC, correct me if I'm wrong, in spring 2017, right? Or the summer 2017? Summer, yep. Summer 2017 batch. And you also went through the YC's growth program a few years later, um, yep. which, which is kind of their follow-on investment that they do outside the accelerator a lot has changed and publicly so with YC and in the way it invests in companies and the way it goes, it's just like almost a Lambda school for startups. I don't know if that's the right analogy or if you like it, but um, I'll take it. I'd love to be compared <laughs> to YC in any analogy. <laughs> uh, so since, since 2017, the back size has increased so much. YC has invested a lot more money in a lot of different companies. And that has also changed kind of the private asset space. I don't know if you angel invest, but it, the, the quote unquote startup prices are all over the place. What is your thought on that market? Do you think YC still carries? It's almost a Princeton analogy, right? If Princeton all of a sudden starts taking in 14,000 students, does the quality of education go down with, with the same infrastructure in place? Do you think that applies to YC, given the growth in companies that have seen and started taking on? Yes, that's a really good question. I think it's, you know, um, one that YC deals with a lot and you know when when we were there so here's the way i like to answer it is if you so there 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 are multiple angles but from a financial perspective 
Um, YC's economics are basically YC invests $120,000 in companies and they get 7% of that company. Um, if you look at just, you know, let's take Stripe as an example, which, you know, it's valued at around $100 billion today. Um, so, you know, there's been some dilution and other stuff. So let's say YC still holds 3% of Stripe. I don't know what the actual numbers are, right? Um, and in some instances, they've be, been careful not to dilute and to invest more money. But let's let's assume they never invested anything else, and Stripe is diluted by about you know to by seventy percent. So let's say um, YC only has three percent of Stripe now. There, so at current valuation, YC gets about what is that thirty billion dollars from Stripe. Am I doing that math right? Is it, is it $100 no, three billion, billion valuation? Three billion. billion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So billion. if you look at how much money YC has spent ever, there's no way it adds up to $3 billion. <laughs> So Y Combinator, their incentives are to make sure that they don't miss the next stripe, no matter what the next stripe may be. Whatever the next $100 billion company is, if, as long as they hit one of those every 20 years, everything else is just free profit. All the, the Reddit and DoorDash and Airbnb and uh, that's all just profit, which is like, you know, the most incredible pro, you know, portfolio that there's ever been in some instances. Um, so if you're YC, your goal is to not miss all the big companies. And how do you get all of the big companies? Well, you make the, you make it so attractive to uh, founders to join YC and you make a big enough difference that everybody wants to come. Um, so that's the real question. Uh, well, I guess there are two questions. One is, you know, is the quality of the average YC startup diluted? Um, you know, to answer that question, Lambda School was in a batch of about a hundred companies. And before that, you know, they were starting batches of 50. And before that, they were starting batches of 10. Um, I am almost certain that Lambda School, had it been three years earlier, would not have been accepted into Y Combinator. Um, so, you know, you can, you can do the math on what our current valuation is, and it's, it's not public. But assuming that Lambda School works out, Lambda School will pay for an entire batch full of companies, right? Take 100 companies, it, it should pay for that. Um, so that, I think, is the important thing is YC should do everything it can to not miss the next, you know, if there's a company that's going to be worth a hundred million dollars plus, YC should be willing to spend, you know, $99 million to not miss that company. And so economically, I think it's a no brainer, right? Economically, um, YC should, should invest more and the number of applications have grown, the amount of capital that's being invested has grown the number of people that are using the internet, the amount of software spend has all grown. So in some ways it would be like an abdication of opportunity if YC weren't growing at a similar rate to, to those things. Um, and that's what basically what I think has happened. Um, now I also have a small rolling fund and I you know invest a few million dollars a year in different startups. Um, and in this last demo day, you know, I alone invested in about 13 YC companies. Um, so that's bigger than the entire batch used to be in like 2012 or, or before. 
Um, so the, the amount of capital and the amount of things you can do and the amount of interest, I think is mostly bound only by human creativity and human potential and, and that kind of thing, which is pretty much uncapped. So I, I am probably in the minority here, but the long answer to your question is I think um, YC would be neglecting its fiduciary duty if it didn't grow. Um, and I think it's right for YC to grow. And yeah, it's a lot of companies, but there is a lot of money and there's a lot of stuff to be done. So I think it makes sense for them to, to do exactly what they're doing. Uh, just to quickly follow up, Austin, um, I, I'm outside of the entrepreneurship and Silicon Valley community. So uh, maybe I'll ask something very uh, outsider-ish, but it, but it sounds very kind of like a first mover advantage and it sounds like a gatekeeper, right? So, so YC is the accelerator it picks the great companies. You know, if you're a college student, you're, you have a very promising startup, you apply to YC, you get in, you get groomed, you become a better company, you meet all the most interesting people in Silicon Valley and YC prepares you and pitches you to all the top VCs. The, the, the VCs invest in you, they help you grow and then you become better and then eventually your valuation blows up and YC becomes more famous. So this sounds like a big loop of, of top, really top players having a great time, but we also know that most of the VCs out there, most of the investors out there, they lose money. I mean, top VC, the, the VC industry's returns are highly skewed and most startups fail. So I, from my vantage point, it's like we're devoting huge amount of capital into, into this. Uh, to, the opportunity cost is huge because we're only really trying to capture the next Google, the next Stripe. But, but there's huge amount of capital that, that, uh, that is being wasted, right, in some way. Yeah, I mean, let, let me offer a slightly different viewpoint on that. Um, and that is, you know, if, so Stripe um, being such a wildly successful company effectively subsidized all of the other attempts of innovation, right? Like Facebook and Google, without, without Facebook and Google and Uber existing, there are probably hundreds of companies that are doing, you know, or there are thousands of companies that are doing incredible things that wouldn't have existed without those big winners. So almost by definition, if you are a startup and you have not produced a big exit for the investors, you are being subsidized by the big wins. Um, so, you know, I look at the Stripe and I mean, Stripe's also an investor in Lambda School, but I say, you know, thank you for giving us a chance because without those outsized returns, you know, there wouldn't be the, I think the last batch had like something like 300 founders that were given, you know, a little bit of money from Y Combinator. That wouldn't have been true without the Stripes and the Airbnbs and the DoorDashes of the world. Um, so I think even more so than we recognize, we should be grateful to those, you know, outsized winners. And, you know, the fact that they're hugely, enormously, incredibly valuable is an awesome thing. And if an industry wants to, like, you know, industries are in the long-term rational and if VC weren't producing outsized returns, it would cease to exist. Um, and not every VC fund makes money, but the reason it's still there is because if you're, you know, the Princeton endowment, you are carving out 10% of your money to go to VC and there's a decent chance that money will like 20 X itself, which just isn't possible in most other asset classes. Um, so, you know, the returns kind of normalize over time, but the, there, there are big winners 
Um, and those big winners change everything and they subsidize all of the loss. And I think that's not only okay and not even just unavoidable, it's just like the way the world works, right? If you think Lambda School has a 50% chance of being successful, um, and let's say if it's successful, it becomes, we'll just say a billion dollar company, right? And you want to say, okay, so risk adjusted, Lambda School is a $500 million company. There's still a 50% chance it goes to zero or low, or you know, you, you don't make very much money. And that happens all the time. So the 13 companies in the last YC batch that I invested in, I expect half of them to go to zero and I'm still giving them a bunch of money. And the only reason that's true is because I expect, you know, some of them to do incredibly, incredibly well. And that's what propels innovation in the United States. That's what propels, you know, change. The, the and so it's value. expected that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Think about how much value wouldn't exist if VC didn't exist. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that makes the United States really great is we have, we understand that relationship really, really well. And we, we price risk and we market risk and we trade risk and we move it from the wrong place to the right place. Um, and that's really, really important in the scheme of things. I think very well said, and I totally agree with everything, but I think there's, there's one point that I genuinely want to hear your thoughts on because we're on the purview of Lambda School and we're purview of talking about these institutions that have existed for like 200 years at this point, right? So the, the value that the, the accelerator provides YC or like others in this case is that they're able to provide you with the resources or the knowledge to take something supposedly from an idea or, or that early stage to something that can potentially grow or have the expected value of 50%. Um, so my, my question still is, do you think personally, because you've been involved in the alumni demo day, you've invested in these companies personally, you've seen them kind of come out of YC and have taken a bet on them. Do you think YC has been able to keep up with the increasing companies they're taking on in the batch? I think there were like 350 companies or more in the batch in the sense that the team hasn't grown at the same rate that the partners that get involved, like the groups have fundamentally become bigger. Is the quality of kind of Delta that comes out of before YC after YC, has that remained at least constant or has that grown with the more money that has come from Stripe? Yeah. So it's also a really good question. So, you know, when I was in YC, you have, um, you have basically two partners. So my partners were Jeff Ralston and Daniel Gross. And you basically meet with them once or twice a week. Um, and, you know, so, it's, you know, their, their cost of having Lambda School in their group was, we'll say, you know, two to four hours a week all in. Um, well, between those two people, you have, and one of those is in a group setting and one of those is one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so the big shift that happened at YC is it used to be that the partners basically worked for four hours a week. Um, and so now they added more companies and the partners work for 20, 24 hours a week. Um, so I think that's totally sustainable. That's just, you know, a ratio shift. Um, so the ratio, basically the ratio of hour spent per company is exactly the same. I think, um, I mean, I'm sure there are some, you know, group events that are a little bit different, but, uh, I mean, if somebody came to me and said, what is YC worth it? 
in every instance, I say yes. Like I've never said no to a single company, even those that are profitable and probably beyond that point. And the reason is this, and this, this is like the magic that makes both YC and Lambda School really special is the rational way you should be doing the math is let's say YC costs 7% dilution. The question you should be asking yourself is will my company be more than 7% bigger or more successful as a result of having attended YC? Um, I've never seen an instance where I'm like, no, in, in your instance, it's probably only 5% like increase in likelihood of success or you know, evaluation or whatever measure you want, right? Um, so it's not just that, you know, it's not just a dollar for equity transaction. It's not just a time per equity transaction. What you're really trading on is the likelihood of future success. And, you know, there are companies, there have been accelerators that have come along and have said, we're only going to take 3% um, instead of 7%, or we're going to give you twice as much money. And the reason why C has withstood the test of time is because they have figured out the secret sauce to increase your likelihood of success as a young startup. And as a young startup where the likelihood of success is very small, that's the most important metric by a mile. So you should optimize for the likelihood of success. And, you know, I, I hope that Lambda School does pay for an entire batch of, you know, YC, you know, YC companies. And I hope that batch is a thousand companies. I, you know, where me and YC are entirely aligned in that. And I think, you know, that, that alignment is really special. I promise you, this is the last question I'm going to ask on this thread, and then we can move on. But no the question is along the lines of, if you, if you were to draw a spectrum, how much of you think um, that the increase in success comes out of the fact that it's the stamp of YC versus there's there's a tangible exchange of knowledge? And then I, 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 can, I can tell you why this relates to Lambda School in my mind as well. I, I genuinely feel like institutions get to a point in scale and size, wherein they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. And um, there, there can come a point in the history of Lambda School, it would be a great point to have, wherein you having gone to Lambda School is enough to tell an employer that you're great, which I hear is already happening. Do you think that happens with YC as well? Do you think it's a 50-50 split, wherein 50% is like tangibly the founders learn something and the startup change its model and optimize for things? 50% of it is just because you're YC, will give you a 20% premium because other VCs believe you'll be more valued. Yeah, I think it's probably 75% the knowledge and like, like Lambda School would probably be dead today if not for the knowledge that we gained in YC. Um, so, you know, in my mind, I can either give YC 7% of something that is hopefully really big and really valuable, or I can not give them 7% of nothing um, and I will choose to give them that 7% all day. Um, it's, it's obviously hard to know, like, you know, the selection bias of being a YC company. Or, you know, when I talk to investors, do they say, oh my gosh, they're a YC company? You know, I think at this point now, like, you know, we're four years old, we've raised $120 million. Like nobody cares that we're in YC anymore. Um, they just care that we're a great company. So it, it probably is a leg up in the early days. And, and definitely, you know, the demo day, like true market dynamic that's difficult to create on your own, where people know they have 
you know, you're talking to thousands of investors and they only have a few hours to decide if they want to invest. Like that's pretty powerful. It's really difficult to create that um, on your own as a seed stage startup. Um, but yeah, for, for my money, like I, I would guess it's 75% the, the, the actual value provided versus the, the credential. That said, I don't know because I've always had like everything I've done with this company is with the credential. So maybe people are saying, oh, well, I should just invest because they're a YC company and they're not telling me that. Um, I don't think that's as true as some people would assume. It, yeah, it makes it, yeah, it probably makes it so that doors that might be closed are not closed. But I don't think anybody like, you know, they're a good company, they're good YC companies and they're bad YC companies. There are a lot of YC companies that are going to go to zero. So it's not, you know, it's not a sure shot that if you invest in YC company, you have a great return. That makes sense. No, thank you so much. This was, this was a rather long stretch on the same thread, but thank you. No, let, let me make it longer. Uh, not on YC per se, but I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on, on just entrepreneurship and, and this current investing slash um, entrepreneurship environment that we're seeing. I mean, we're just seeing this big SPAC boom, special purpose acquisition companies. I mean, I think hundreds of SPACs are being raised and people are saying like, these are just blank check companies. And the narratives behind that is that we're democratizing uh, you know, financial and, and technological innovations. Now an average American can finally buy in into this boom of technology. And we see new things such as AngelList. I, I uh, remember you talking about it on a different podcast, Austin, about how you got on AngelList and you invested in Clubhouse. And uh, nowadays anybody can can spend some money on, on AngelList, uh, get into part of a rolling fund or a syndicate fund and so on. So are we seeing a... a flourishment of human potential right now or are we seeing just irrational exuberance because there's too much money flowing around by the way we're gonna we're gonna have a clickbaity title for this podcast probably like princeton students attempt to destroy yc and gets destroyed by <laughs> lambda school founder or something i mean <laughs> yeah, whatever you get, i mean i'll let you be the editorial decision on that piece um but yeah i mean ha happy to answer that question i think what we're seeing are two things or three things simultaneously. Um, we're definitely seeing an asset bubble that is, I mean, not just in tech startup, and I, maybe I shouldn't even say bubble, but like companies are worth more today than they would have been worth five years ago for a variety of reasons. Um, and that's just like, that's not, that's not just true within tech, that's just true of every company, every asset, that, basically every asset that there is. Um, there's a lot of money flowing into the system and not a lot of places for it to go. Um, and I would, I would offer a slightly different viewpoint on, I mean, are there going to be SPACs that are super bubbly and are going to go to zero and people are going to lose a ton of money? Like probably, like, I'm, I mean, I'm almost certain that there will be. Um, but the way, the way I view what's happening right now is more like after 2008 and, you know, after Sarbanes-Oxley, like when it became dramatically more difficult for companies to go public, or perhaps said more differently, the opportunity cost of being a public company kind of declined. Um, like, you know, we were talking about Stripe earlier in the conversation, reportedly at a $100 billion valuation, still private, like you can't get Stripe shares almost no matter what you're willing to pay for it. 
Um, and you know, if if this were 2000, if this were 1999 or 2000, they would have been public probably 10 years ago, right? I don't even know if they're 10 years old, but let's assume they're 10 years old. They would have been public 10 years ago, uh, which is crazy. That I don't, I don't know how old they are. Um, but what another thing that we're seeing is if you look at like, if you look at growth, right, which is what uh, investors really need, whether it's you know public market investors, whether it is pension funds or four hundred one ks or whatever, like. The reason most Americans are able to fund any kind of retirement at all is because of growth in the stock market. So you save a bunch of money, that savings is awesome, but what really makes you money is all of the growth from being in the market. Um, my worry for some time has been that, you know, there's still growth in the public markets for sure. Um, but if net net private companies are staying private longer, there will be less growth in the public markets than there would have been. And if there are a similar level of loss in the, in the public markets that there would have been, by definition, almost the, the amount of growth will decline. Um, or at a minimum, it will be trapped inside of the private markets where most people have no access to it. Um, you know, that's a, and that's a difficult trade-off where the, you know, there, there are reasons that um, you know, we'll say the, the SEC doesn't want the average American to invest in startups. They're difficult to understand. They're incle incredibly risky. They can seem like a no-brainer when they're actually not. All sorts of things can go wrong. You can get super diluted in a way that doesn't really happen in the public markets. Um, you can have common versus preferred stock, which is meaningfully different. Like there are all sorts of things that can go wrong. Um, but if you look at kind of the last 10 years, there's been such incredible growth in the private markets, including you know risk adjusted, loss adjusted, whatever way you want to measure it, that the average American didn't take part in. Um, and you know you can talk about wealth inequality or or whatever else, but the fact that you have to be an accredited investor, which means you basically have to be wealthy or on your way to being wealthy to have access to that feels really, it makes me nervous, right? Um, and so also, you know, people investing in startups willy-nilly would also make me nervous, but like at a certain point, it's almost an economic truism that the amount of growth will be reflected in the amount of risk people are willing to take. And right now, the fastest growing, highest risk companies are all locked away from the average American. Um, and their 401ks and their mutual funds. Um, and I don't feel great about that. I don't know what the solution is. Um, Do you feel but, like the solution is democratizing the private market in some way? I mean, uh, we mentioned AngelList right now. I think they have a quote-unquote syndicate fund or, or public access fund where you, you just need to put 30K per quarter for four quarters in a row. Uh, and that's kind of like a startup index fund. Or so you don't need to be an accredited investor. You don't need to be a millionaire. You can. Do you like this kind of approach slash direction? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I think it, I think it has to happen um, or we're going to run into trouble as an economy, frankly. Um, 
and there, you know, I hope that everybody understands the risk of that. And like, you know, the returns of angel funds are very different than the returns of public equities. Um, but, you know, I, I have a small rolling fund. Um, Would you mind that, telling so that's us gonna, a bit more about your rolling fund? Yeah, I mean, so I, I had been investing my own money for quite a while, just as I came across companies that I thought were interesting. Um, but some of my checks were tiny, right? Um, we're talking like $2,000 here, $1,000 there, where um, founders, you know, took the money because they wanted to work with me, but really the money wasn't like super meaningful for them and wasn't going to move the needle. Um, so it's, it's kind of a crazy story where I was talking, I was tweeting about this um, and another founder of a company called Gumroad saw my tweets about it and said, hey, you should raise a rolling fund. And I was like going to the bathroom. And by the time I came back from the bathroom, he was like, hey, I'm gathering interest for Austin's rolling fund. And if you want to participate, fill out this form. And like by the next morning, I had like $30 million committed for a fund that I didn't raise. Um, so you know, I turned the vast, vast majority of it down. But like, you know, Austin, what could I could you accepted... tweet something for me and Arsh? I mean, could, <laughs> could you? <laughs> We could use a couple million dollars. To, yeah. to, I mean, <laughs> it's that that is among the craziest things that has ever happened to me, to be clear. Um, but yeah, that like kicked off my small rolling fund. And I don't invest a ton of money, right? I'm not like investing $20 million a year or anything like that. Um, but frankly, I have access to a lot of companies and founders that it would be basically difficult for the average person to have access to. Um, and so instead of, you know, finding those and vetting those people can just invest in my fund. Um, what will my fund return, you know, for a variety of reasons, I can't even begin to predict. Um, but I think it's interesting, right? I think, and I think it's healthy that people can choose if they'd like to participate in that piece of the economy and how they'd like to participate. And, you know, there are definitely funds that lose money. And then there's lowercase capital, which return, I think it was like 5,000 X. So if you, you know, you put a thousand dollars in, you ended up with $5 million. Like, I mean, that's, that's like the best returning fund of all time. And they were in like, you know, Twitter and Uber when both companies yeah. were at like $5 million valuations, just ridiculous, ridiculous stuff. Um, but, you know, risk adjusted and distributed I would like the average American to be able to participate in that growth. Um, and I you know, understand that there's risk associated with that, but I think you know, there are ways to mitigate that risk to some degree. Um, and you know, the greater the risk, generally speaking, the greater the return. So it makes me nervous that a lot of Americans are locked out of all the risk. I, I see. Um, I, I guess as we, gradually head towards the end of the interview. I, I also do want to quickly ask your thoughts on investors or funds or verticals or companies that you personally uh, have invested in and, and saw great growth or, or that you are looking forward to explore more in. I guess uh, we're, we're not an investment program here at Policy Punchline, but when Arsh and I heard about the 5,000x opportunity, both of our eyes opened up. So uh, yeah, we would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, that's not normal, to be clear. That's yes, like saying, yes. <laughs> yeah. like, this basketball player, you know, was the lead 
leadoff hitter for the Yankees. Like that's not a normal, like yeah. <laughs> average run of the mill return, yeah. but it is possible. Right. Um, and it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I need to like, it's obviously very rare and not what anybody should expect from investing in startups. Um, but, you know, similarly to what we talked about earlier, those kinds of returns subsidize a lot of the, of the losses. Um, so what I am interested in investing in is I really invest in uh, companies and people that I run across almost organically. Um, so Silicon Valley at a certain point becomes just very, very small. Um, and like, I mean, I'm in a few signal groups with other founders and we realized that a certain, like for a variety of reasons, basically everybody in the group has in one way or another invested in everybody else in the group. Like it's very small and incestuous and there, you know, there are in a lot of instances, fewer really transformative great companies than there is capital willing to invest in those companies. It's incredibly difficult to create one of those companies. Um, but that's, yeah, it's kind of the way the world works right now. Um, I, I, so I, I don't yeah. invest. So, I, so, you know, my thesis is basically, do I think this is like an, oh my gosh, outrageously big market? And do I think this is an, oh my gosh, outrageously big founder? And if it is, then I invest. And if not, then I don't. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, super sophisticated or super, you know, not like the best financial modeler in the world, or, you know, I'm, I'm not like finding companies that nobody's ever heard of that have no network. That's not my style of investing. I just don't have time to do that. Um, I invest in people that I know and trust and markets that I think are really big. Um, and that's enough for, for my little fund. Uh, I heard that you invested in Clubhouse which is now the, the new hot thing in Silicon Valley, it appears so? Uh, yeah, yeah. I am a s small investor in Clubhouse. That was uh, one of my very small angel checks before I had a fund. Um, and frankly, Clubhouse was such a popular deal that I don't know if I would have been able to get a big check in. Um, but, but yeah, I, I love Clubhouse. I was one of the first probably 500 users back before they like barely had a product. Um, and like within an hour of using it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is the next thing. And I emailed the founder and said, how can I invest, take my money? Um, and he said, there's no way to invest. So I had to wait until the next opportunity. Um, but, but yeah, I slipped a little check into Clubhouse. You're really uh, bullish on Clubhouse. I, I'm extremely bearish, by, by the way. I, I, okay. <laughs> I, I guess it's, a, it's kind of the opposite of podcasting because it's, it's, it's live, it's audio only, whereas podcasting, you kind of have to be a little bit more thoughtful and curated and the content gets recorded. Uh, so, so I guess people compare podcasting and Clubhouse all the time, but it seems uh, two very different medium. I, I, I know we, we probably don't have too much time left, but uh, what would be your- Oh, well, happy to talk Clubhouse. Yeah, 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 yeah please. <laughs> what are so your the, pa the power of Clubhouse is less in the medium. I mean, the medium is obviously important. It's obviously important that it is um, audio conversations. Um, but what makes Clubhouse powerful is the network. So it's the ability for people to come in and out of conversations, for people to join conversations, 
And like, there are clubhouse conversations that would never, ever happen in a podcast format. And I would say that's the vast majority of, of clubhouse conversations. Um, so I still think they have some stuff to figure out, which is to what extent is it ephemeral versus to what extent is it, you know, recordable and playback later. But, you know, I'll be in a conversation. Uh, you know, I, I got a, a ping the other day and it was Naval Ravikant and he was saying, hey, I'm, you know, joint, you know, I'm just pinging my, all the people that I think are smart and we're going to get like 10 people in this clubhouse room and we're going to talk about whatever. And then if the conversation is interesting, we're just going to hit this open up button. Um, you know, so it was me, Naval Ravikant, Mark and Drayson, like some of the people that I look up to the most in the world and we're just chatting. And then all of a sudden they're like, hey, let's open this up. And they hit the open button and all of a sudden, you know, 5,000 people have joined the conversation. Like that would never be a scheduled podcast. And as much as I respect and admire all those people, like the poor assistant that would have to try to schedule that dinner so that we would all get together and talk, like it just wouldn't happen. So I think that the important thing is less that they're audio conversations and more that they're conversations that wouldn't otherwise happen. It sounds like a great time for 10 of you guys, but the, the, for the vast majority of the 5,000 people, they don't have a chance to talk to you. They don't have a chance to really, the signal to noise ratio is, could be quite low, right? I mean, you, well, you I might think, need to I mean, wait for a long time before anything truly insightful comes up. Whereas I could just pull up a YouTube video by you or uh, one of the podcast interviews you did. And there's so much signal in there. There's so much substance of Austin or of Mark Andreessen. Why, why do I want yeah, to so hear I mean, you chat? Think about like, so YouTube is actually a good analogy in the sense that like on the other side of the YouTube spectrum would be like network television, right? Where like everything is super, super high quality, super, super high signal. Whereas YouTube is just like a bunch of random people making videos. Um, but the reality is there's going to be so much content in YouTube that would never exist as a network uh, video that you're willing to sift through all of the noise. Um, and similarly, like, you know, there, you know, Kanye West and Elon Musk getting together and talking on clubhouse, like that would never happen in a podcast. Um, sure. but like, I, I'm going to listen to that, even though right. I'm sure a bunch of it will be noise just because, you know, you're, you're seeking after that signal. So the, I see the question <clears throat> and the question is really for, for the, um, for the clubhouse folks. Like, can you find a way to filter the noise enough that people are interested? And what I think that comes down to is really networks. Like there are people that, I mean, they could be talking about their walk to work that I'm like, oh my gosh, I, whatever they're talking about, I need to listen to that. Um, and similarly to like Twitter, they're going to expose those conversations in a way that podcasting just hasn't. And so that's the bet is that it's the it's about who is talking and what they're talking about more so than what the the ratio is of signal to noise. I could be wrong, could go to zero, but I I think it'll be really meaningful. Uh, Arsh and I were debating this actually today at lunch, and he was saying that there's no way it goes to zero, and he's actually quite bullish on uh, on, on, on on Clubhouse. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm bullish on not saying there's no way it goes to zero. I think that's uh, accurate. I've so, seen, I mean, as an investor, I've seen the growth numbers and uh, it is doing quite the opposite of growing to zero. I see. I see. No, it's, it's actually really, okay, maybe this will come, come 
uh, back to buy my ass. I, uh, I was, uh, I recently did my, my first personal ever podcast interview. I did it with Rob Johnson, who is the president of the Institute for new economic thinking. And he's a close friend with Eric Weinstein. Eric Weinstein got him on clubhouse and they were chatting and I went on Rob's podcast and basically talked for 15 minutes about why I think clubhouse is, is horrible. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, maybe well, I'll Eric be. Weinstein is like, he's, he spends 15 hours on the call. He's on clubhouse day. all day long. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love the guy, uh, but yeah. That, that's great. Uh, Austin, I, I know you, you, you probably have something coming up very soon. So I, I guess Arsh and I will, will gradually wrap this up. I, w- one question that I'm quite curious about to, to kind of gradually come to an end, what would be one contrarian view on your mind that uh, you have that a lot of people in your common circle, a lot of smart people in your life would disagree with you about? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, uh, there's so many, <laughs> so um, many, that, w- wonderful. <laughs> Let me think of one that won't get me in trouble. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the more difficult challenge. <laughs> uh, we've talked about education. All of those are like, yeah, so contrarian that they're not contrarian anymore. Exactly. Um, <laughs> let's see. Oh, I, uh, <laughs> I keep thinking of good ones and then I realize that at some point my PR team will listen to this and freak out. Um, we can just end the podcast here and leave it for suspense. And, and then everybody would just not know what, what it is. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Just pretend like you bleeped it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is what Austin, Austin said. And then we believe this part anyways. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and last question from me, which is the name of our show is policy punchline. So we always ask at the end, what would your punchline be uh, for this interview? That, that does not have to be contrarian or controversial. Just what, what, what's some one, one thing that you want to, uh, one takeaway for our listeners. My, my policy punchline, since that's the full name of the yes. podcast, um, would be please give us a regulatory framework for income share agreements, Congress. How's that? Wonderful. That, that sounds great. Do, do you kind of have an idea how that might look like? Just a quick follow-up, how that yeah. should look like? Yeah, no, I've been on Capitol Hill begging for it, but then Trump won the election and nobody cared about anything anymore. So we'll see if that opens up again. I see. No. But yeah, that was, that was all of a sudden, all of the policy work just went straight to zero. <laughs> nobody was interested in writing laws anymore. I see. I see. No, to- to- totally makes sense. I mean, the uh, we can go on and on, but Arsh and I also uh, want to let you go. Thanks so much for joining us today, Austin. And uh, uh, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Arsh, thanks so much for uh, co-hosting the interview with me. Thank you. Thank you for and- having me. So you may follow Austin on, on Twitter at Austin and learn more about Lambda School at lambdaschool.com. It's again, it's just a fascinating new online platform that trains you how to do computer science and helps you find a job without letting you pay up front. So it's a fascinating new idea. I hope you continue to support Austin, support their work. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast interview today. Follow us on policypunchline.com. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University.
We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.